Remember about two years ago, um, I was sitting in Costa, coffee with a flat white in uh, the middle of the QMC hospital. I'd just come from the ward that my wife Lizzie was on. The previous day, after weeks in hospital, Lizzie's waters had gone at 23 weeks. The neonatal consultant had told us that the baby would probably arrive in the next few hours and that there wasn't really anything they could do. We needed to prepare ourselves for loss. So we'd waited minute by minute for the baby's arrival, just horrible, just a horrible 24 hours without the baby yet arriving. So I nipped out of the ward to make some phone calls and, um, and I sat down in Costa with my Bible just for a moment. And those moments are absolutely horrible if you've ever been in anything like that. There's just nowhere you can go to escape. Nothing that changes, just the devastating reality that you are living in and with. You can't switch it off. You can't make it shorter. You just feel absolutely powerless. And I remember just sitting and opening the Psalms in the Bible. And I wish I could say, you know, that I was filled with hope, that I came away filled with faith, just claiming the promises of God over my wife and baby. I wish I could say that peace rushed in like a river as I read. I wish I could say that I went back to the ward somehow differently to how I'd left it. But the truth is, I didn't. The same terrible reality that was there before was there during and was there after that coffee. The external circumstances hadn't changed and neither really, if I'm honest, had the internal circumstances either. The fear, the sorrow, the longing to escape, just that, the, the unknown and anxiety was all still there. But there was something as I read. And I think the best word I can think, think about it, is the best word I can use to describe it is that I felt as I read these words from 3,000 years ago, I felt understood. I felt understood. Like these words weren't trying to make me feel better. It wasn't attempting to minimize the moment we were in. It wasn't trying to distract from it or paint it in a more positive light. Instead, I just found words in which I felt understood. Like they gave me footprints that I could walk in. And the thing about feeling understood is that so when you feel understood, you just don't feel quite so alone. Nora, our daughter, actually miraculously, amazingly survived. And she was in kids' work this morning, which is amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> amazing. But at the time, it couldn't have been bleaker. And, you know, it's a remarkable thing that in this book, in these Psalms, there's language here for every season of the soul. From the brightness of Psalm 98, shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth burst into jubilant song. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. To the twilight of Psalm 98, which finishes with the words, closes with these words, darkness is my closest friend. But sometimes that's just how it feels. These poems, these psalms are deeply honest. And it's particularly helpful for us today, I think, in navigating to 
extremes when it comes to dealing with our emotions and feelings. On the one hand, churches traditionally have underplayed the value of emotions and feelings, right? Putting the emphasis often on what we know to be true, on belief with language like standing on the truth and uh, claiming the promises of God. And the effect is often to downplay, ignore, even suppress how we feel when coupled alongside a, a sort of traditional Britishness, we're sort of, we're fighting a losing battle, right? On the other hand, culture more generally influenced on a popular level by things like Hollywood and Disney, but on a more fundamental level by the philosophy of postmodernity and the rejection of truth puts a huge and almost exclusive emphasis on how we feel, right? Live your truth. We've all heard that. So if in the church, feelings have historically been treated like the pauper, then in culture, treat, feelings have been treated like the prince. And it's here between treating our emotions as prince or pauper that I think the Psalms are so extraordinarily helpful because they give us a place and a purpose for them. They don't define us, but they are part of how God designed us. We mustn't ignore them, neither should we enthrone them. Instead, we are to be honest about them. And we see that so clearly in the psalm that we're going to look at today. Songs often have uh, stories behind them, right? I read the other day about the ongoing saga regarding which ex-boyfriends various Taylor Swift songs were about. Safe to say, no shortage of candidates. Um, but personally, one of my favorite songs is a song, song by Ryan Adams called Elizabeth, You Were Born to Play That Part. I don't know if anyone's heard that, but it was, it was written as a reflection on his friend's loss of a child. It's sad and it's beautiful. Songs often spring from stories, from deep emotion that requires more something beyond standard prose to express them. And the poem we're looking at today is by King David of David and Goliath fame. And it springs also from a story. And you can read about it if you want in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But to summarize, most of the army are away at war. Remember, this is like 3,000 plus years ago. But David has remained in Jerusalem. He's the king and he notices a beautiful but married woman called Bathsheba. Uh, he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And David then attempts to cover up the problem. So he recalls her husband, Uriah, from the war under the guise of needing to ascertain how the war is going. But then he twice encourages Uriah to go home and sleep with your wife. But Uriah is unwilling to do so, especially when other men are at war. And so he sleeps outside the king's gate instead. David, realizing his plan isn't working, he can't cover up, he sends him back to war with a letter for the commander telling him to place Uriah where the fighting is heaviest and his death is inevitable. He is killed and David swiftly takes Bathsheba to be his wife. It's pretty bad by most metrics. Soon after, Nathan, a prophet, visits David and he vividly confronts him with what he's done. This is like high risk speaking truth to power, right? You could imagine he's freaking out, but David is cut to the heart. And it's from here that Psalm 51 tumbles out. A personal song that became for the people of Israel and has become for many millions of people across history, almost like footprints that they too could walk in when confronted with their own brokenness, shortcomings, and failings. 
So let's listen to this psalm. I'm just going to invite Jenny up. She's going to come and read it for us. There's going to be a bit of music in the background. Um, And as you listen, you might want to just close your eyes, just relax, and just give this poem, this psalm, space to be what it is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I have been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Thank you, guys. I love this picture by Charlie Mackesy. I wonder whether you've seen it. It should be coming up in a moment. There we go. What's the bravest thing you've ever said? Asked the boy. Help, said the horse. Help. I think is one of the best words to describe this psalm. A cry for help. And when we do that, when we, when we ask for help, we, it requires three things of us. It requires honesty, it requires trust, and it requires hope. To ask for help requires honesty because you have to admit that there's something wrong. It requires trust because to ask someone for help is to be vulnerable with them, right? And it requires some degree of hope that there may actually be a way through, that in fact you may actually be helpable, Honesty, trust, 
and hope. And this psalm is full of these three things. Generally speaking, I think we struggle with total honesty, right? We tend to justify, excuse, downplay, cover, present in a positive light. I read some amusing insurance claims the other day. One man writes this, I did reverse my car out of my drive into the number eight bus. In my defense, the bus was running five minutes early. It's going to wash. Or there's, uh, there's a famous excuse the footballer Luis Suarez um, gave when clearly biting another player's shoulder. I just bumped into him with my teeth. <laughs> or the actress Winona Ryder on being caught shoplifting argued that she was getting into character for a role that she had coming up. Just this week in the news, you may have seen it, but there was an article about Spain's summer campaign encouraging women of all shapes and sizes to hit the beach. But this body positive message and image was undermined by the model's complaint that they had photoshopped out her prosthetic leg. We're all too familiar with the photoshopped version of reality that masks the truth. Being totally honest, without excuse, being seen, without pretense, just isn't easy for us. The physical masks that we've been wearing over the last few years, vivid reminders of the metaphorical masks that we wear, much of the time. There's this fascinating and sad book called um, Post Secrets. I don't know whether you ever saw this a few years ago, Um, but the idea was that people could write a secret on a postcard and send it anonymously to an address where it would be compiled into a book. Um, And here's a few. (laughs) I give decaf to customers who are rude to me. (laughs) I smile all the time so that nobody knows how sad and lonely I really am. While others others pray at church, I bow my head and think about TV programs I plan on watching. (laughs) Anyone here? (laughs) My arms are covered in scars. You'd be surprised how little people notice. I don't know how not to be lonely. You know, there are thousands of these, some disturbing, as you might imagine, but given anonymity, there's a lot that comes out. We struggle with being deeply honest, whilst at the same time knowing that keeping secrets is unhealthy for us. One writer says this, when you do, you may notice a cascade of stress symptoms ripple through your body. Another writes, just like it takes tremendous structural strength for a dam to hold back a river, It takes tremendous emotional and psychological energy to hold back what we hide. And as a result, another writes, researchers linked secrecy to increased anxiety, depression, symptoms of poor health, and even the more rapid progression of disease. It's unhealthy, and yet we still do it. But David here, the Psalms go a different way. He just doesn't hide anything. Look at what he says. Verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me of my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right when in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In the whole vocabulary of the biblical language of Hebrew, there are three words for sin. And David uses all three of them here in the first two verses. 
The first word, sin, in verse two, translates the word chata'ah, which means failure. And it can be pretty broad. Um, for example, the Benjamites who were a tribe in Israel and they, was, they were known for being very good at the slingshot. And it says uh, of the men of Benjamin that they would throw and never chata'ah, never miss the mark, sin. The idea is that we fail to quite live in the way God intends us to. The second word, transgression, in verse three, translates to the word pesha, which means willful violation. And it's kind of like, here's the line, and I'm going to cross it anyway. And the third word, iniquity, in verse two, translates to the word avon, which means going astray, like two paths, and you choose the wrong one. The language of sin isn't very popular today, is it? I mean, perhaps you hear it. And immediately it just triggers something for you. It carries so much cultural baggage, doesn't it? So if the, if the word sin is a trigger for you, then you can switch it out. But the thing that David is, is getting to is a deeply honest acknowledgement of the wrong he has done. And he uses all the vocabulary that he has available in his description of it. He's holding nothing back. But he goes even further. Look at verses five and six and the imagery about being sinful from birth, even further back from conception. He's using a device here called parallelism, parallelism, tongue twister, uh, which you'll see loads of in the Psalms. It's a coupling of lines. It's like um, A and what's more B, this and what's more that. You know, sinful from birth and what's more from conception. And the point here isn't one of doctrine, but it's the pen of a poet using language to express the horror and the depth of what he's done. It just isn't covering anything up. And he goes even further. He, he knows he's wronged Uriah and Bathsheba, and yet he recognises too that he has wronged God. Against you and you alone have I sinned, he says, making the point with some hyperbole that every horizontal wrong against another is always and simultaneously a vertical wrong against God. You see, if I tell my son Reuben that he is not allowed to punch his brother Ezra, and Reuben goes on to punch him anyway, then there are two people that he needs to apologise to, right? Ezra and me. And what's more, my sorrow as the parent is multifaceted. He's ignored my instruction, and that hurts me. But he's also upset and hurt someone I love, and that also hurts me. And more than that, he's made a choice that hurts ultimately himself and who he's becoming. And because I deeply love him, that also hurts me. You see, God is the invisible casualty in every wrong. And David admits it. He bears all. He isn't hiding or covering. He is deeply honest. And that isn't easy to be, is it? Because it's so very vulnerable. Perhaps that's how you feel. It's just too vulnerable. The psychologist Brené Brown points out that actually vulnerability is the thing that leads to intimacy. If we hold back on vulnerability, we end up feeling alone. It's not easy, but it is important. I remember hearing some parenting advice and the speaker uh, said this, that he always parents and disciplines with this in mind. He says, I want to discipline my uh, and parent in such a way um, 
so that I'm always the person that my, parents, my kids come to first. You know, when they stuff up in the future, and they get themselves into all sorts of trouble. Um, I don't want them to say, dad cannot know this. Don't tell dad. What I'm desperate for them to say is I've got to call dad. I need to talk to dad. I love that. I'm hoping for that. But that happens when your kids understand and know deep, deep down that you are unconditionally for them, right? That you might not agree with them or approve of what they've done, but that ultimately you are the safe place, right? When they fully trust you. And I think that is almost exactly what is going on in this psalm here. The reason David doesn't hide, the reason why he asks for help is entirely to do with what he thinks God is like. Look at verse one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. In this verse alone, we have three characteristics of God, merciful, loving, compassionate. But David is doing more than just listing nice things that he thinks God might be like. He's actually drawing to mind a passage from the book of Exodus earlier on in the Bible. And it's not just any passage. It's actually the very first description of what God is like. And it's actually God's own description of what he is like. And it's the most referred to passage in the Bible by the Bible. And it's where God says to Moses, this is who I am, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. You see, David knows the carnage of his sin, but he also knows the character of his God. It's like he's talking to God and he's saying, I know that I've stuffed up, but I also know that you are always loving I know that I don't deserve anything, but I also know that you have said yourself that you are compassionate, that you are gracious, that you are merciful. And there's a word here that we don't really pick up in our translations. It's the word unfailing, uh, it's the word for unfailing love, and it's the word hesed. And hesed is the word used to talk particularly about what theologians call God's covenantal love. You see, David is aware of being part of this bigger story of God's commitment to his people. And and though Israel rejects him again and again, walk away again and again, God never does because of his hesed love. He's faithful, he's committed, he's unfailing love. And David draws this to mind, along with a thousand stories that show it of how God had been faithful to Israel, liberating them from slavery in Egypt, parting the sea, in daily provision through the desert, in protecting them against their enemies, in forgiving their sin, in bringing them into the promised land. On and on and on, he's saying, your love isn't up and down. It doesn't come and go like as does. It isn't fickle or blown by the wind. It's unfailing. You see, that's how he sees God. And that's why he's vulnerable. You don't have to hide when you realise that's what he's like. Asking for help requires honesty. It requires trust. But it also assumes a sort of a degree of hope that we may, in fact, be helped. What does it look like for David? Is, it, is this just about getting stuff off his chest? You know, alleviating the pressure on the dam, you know, the psychological relief that comes from just not hiding anything anymore. I'm sure that's part of it, it'd be all there, but there's more here too. 
Notice how much of the language is the language of request. If you look at verses 1, verse 7, verse 10, this isn't just a sort of dear diary moment or a confession box or just like a 3,000-year-old version of post-secret. It's more like a prayer. And he's asking for a particular type of help. Look at the imagery he uses. In verse 1, blot out, wash away, cleanse. In verse 7, wash me whiter than snow. In verse 10, create in me a pure heart. Some of it isn't a million miles away in imagery that we, imagery we use, like you know, a clean slate or making a fresh start or being squeaky clean. Those sort of things are familiar to us. Some of it is poetic. Whiter than snow is just beautiful imagery, isn't it? But much of this is actually language borrowed from the temple in the Old Testament. Again, David is aware that he's living in this bigger story, the story of God's hesed love his ongoing love and commitment to be with his people. The language about washing and cleansing of sacrifices and offerings was all about this. How could God be among a people who continually missed the mark? These were ways of being made right with God, healing the rift that their chata'ah, avon and pesha had created. And this is David's big hope that God will deal with his sin and heal the fractured relationship that has resulted from it. Interestingly, centuries later, the New Testament writers draw on this same language and idea when they speak about Jesus. He's called the perfect sacrifice, the one who cleanses us, who washes away our sin, again, in order that we might know him, be with him, and he with us. You see, they're borrowing Language, because they too were aware of living in this bigger story, convinced that God's hesed love, his faithful, never giving up love, the love that David is leaning on in this psalm, they're convinced that it runs through the entirety of the Bible and runs through the whole of history and is finally and fully expressed in Jesus dying on a cross for our mistakes, for our sin. And that may sound alien to some of us here today, but it's fundamentally the story that David was living in. And it's the story that followers of Jesus around the world would say has changed their lives. A story of amazing grace, of extraordinary love, a story of forgiveness. That's the substance of what David is asking for, that's the hope, not just to feel better psychologically, but to actually breathe the clean air of forgiveness, of knowing that he's forgiven. I've rarely been as moved as I was once leading worship in a prison chapel a few years ago and listening to these men who had made a total mess of their lives, living in the consequences of decisions that they couldn't undo, And I remember particularly this one man at the back, just with tears streaming down his face and his hands lifted in the air, singing at the top of his lungs, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What a thing to be forgiven. And I suppose some of us might think, you know, that's not me, I don't don't have the problem that so-and-so does, nothing at all like what David did. You know, nothing like this guy over here did. Sorry over there if you... (laughs) Could be prophetic. Um, 
What David did is dramatic, but it's not meant to be a plumb line to measure ourselves against. It was actually those who thought of themselves and were thought of as the most godly that Jesus mainly calls out for pride and hypocrisy and greed, for heart attitudes and thoughts. Ultimately, the picture that we get is that all of us, all of us to some degree, um, have hatah, missed the mark. Others may feel all too aware of shortcomings, guilt, shame. Those emotions are just like roommates for you. And you just feel like you've blown it. Like there's no way back. But you know, it's fascinating. The family line of Jesus traces him back to David, but it traces him back to David through Solomon and through Bathsheba. Isn't that crazy? God's plan runs right through the fault line of David's brokenness right through the fault line of his brokenness. You may have heard the story a while ago um, about the New York Philharmonic Orchestra. Midway through their performance, they were interrupted by the iPhone marimba ringtone and uh, from somewhere in the audience, and the conductor, Alan Gilbert, just stops the performance immediately until it's passed. But it led to the re-emergence of a similar situation where the Slovakian viola player, um, Lukas Mitt, was mid-performance in a recital. And you can imagine the music rising and falling with everyone drawn into the beauty of the piece. And it reaches the most tender moment. And he's interrupted by... Just horrible. Destroying, ruining the moment. And yet Lucas takes half a second, he smiles, and he slowly, carefully begins to improvise, and he starts playing along to the ringtone, (laughs) weaving it in with other notes, weaving it in until he incorporates the ringtone, this broken distraction, this wrong, into the piece of music that he was already playing. You know, it's easy to think like the New York Philharmonic, right? It's ruined, it's over. David could have stopped there too. But the hope in this psalm is that God is not at all like the New York Philharmonic. You may feel like you've derailed your life. You may feel like you can't shake the past. But God is the sort of God who never gives up. He can and does weave brokenness and wrong into the beautiful melody that he has been playing since before you were born. It's just what he's like. And David knows it. That's why he asks for help. It's not easy. It means being honest and vulnerable. It it means taking the risk to trust and to hope. Admitting that you don't have everything together is not easy. Which is why, as the horse said, help is the bravest of words. Why don't we stand together? going to invite Jenny up just to read some of that psalm over us again as we come into a time of ministry and and for this to be part of the time of ministry. So whatever posture you want to adopt that's comfortable for you, you might want to close your eyes, open your hands, but Holy Spirit, we just welcome you here into the room. Would you take your word through your word, Lord? Would you begin to minister to our hearts? 
We love you. We love you. We thank you that you are a God of hesed, love, unfailing, never-ending, that we can come to you no matter what. We open our hearts to you. Would you minister to us through your word? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise.